0: And then two last other quick tips that I thought of was one is to use social media. And I don't mean those beautifully curated university or program site. You're not going to see real life on that. That's just like stock photo kind of quality stuff. But when I'm trying to get a feel for a new place and I'm thinking about moving or attending, I search the location tags on Instagram just to try to, or things like that, just to try to get a vibe of like where people are tagging photos, seeing how people are like really living their lives and then thinking about the fact that you're not just considering a graduate program but you're considering your life being changed in some ways and so for some folks it may mean that you're completely uprooting your life and you've got to figure out is this a a city or a town where I could not just survive but thrive and so doing a little digging on the location itself um, and just making sure that you don't just love your program but that you're you feel safe you feel seen Um, And they're going to feel a sense of belonging in in the city itself.
1: Welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host of today's episode, Heather Shea. Today on the podcast, we're queuing up the next in a series of episodes for Careers in Student Affairs Month. We're building on a recent episode which answered the question, is a student affairs graduate program right for me? With some practical tips, think of this episode as the secret decoder ring episode for everything grad school selection, application, enrollment. We have got several faculty members, program coordinators of graduate programs in higher ed and student affairs from across the US here to help demystify this process. On today's episodes, my panelists will be offering guidance and expert advice as you consider applying to graduate programs in student affairs in higher ed. But before I bring on my guest today, let me tell you a little bit about our channel. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity. A true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information about this episode's sponsor. As I mentioned, I am your host for today's episode, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am broadcasting from the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi peoples, otherwise known as East Lansing, Michigan, home of Michigan State University, where I work. So as I said at the other episode, I've recently found myself engaging in several conversations with undergraduate students who are, share, who are sharing kind of this common aspiration, potentially pursuing a career in student affairs but I know that searching for and applying to grad school can be a really overwhelming process. So we're gonna be unpacking some of the language processes, timelines, and important considerations uh, for prospective graduate students with my panel today. So let me bring them all in. Hello, everyone. Um, Joining me today are Dr. Becky, Becky Crandall from Oregon State University. Dr. Stacey Garrett from Appalachian State University, Dr. Gavin Henning from New England College, and my colleague, Dr. Patricia Marin from Michigan State University. Welcome, all of you. Uh, Thank you for joining me on this episode of Student Affairs Now. Um, I'd like each of you to give just a brief intro about how you're coming into this conversation today, and then, Also, please share where you went to grad school for your master's degree, whether it was in student affairs or something else, why you chose that program, and then what you wished you would have done differently in the process. And Becky, I think we're gonna have you kick us off.
0: Wonderful, well, hi everyone. My name is Becky Crandall and I use she, her pronouns. Um, And as was mentioned, I'm delighted to be joining you all from the Pacific Northwest, where I serve as an associate professor of practice in the adult and higher education program at Oregon State University. Um, And I'm grateful for months like this for so many reasons, Um, but part of that is because of my own journey. My grad school journey is a bit unique in that I don't have a master's in higher education or student affairs. Uh, Back when I was an undergrad in the mid-90s, I knew that I wanted to work with students, but I, I didn't know that student affairs was a career option, to be honest. The only people that I knew who worked with college students were folks who were in campus ministry. And so I decided to attend a seminary in New Orleans, Louisiana, after my undergraduate degree, and I earned a master's of divinity. So again, just a very atypical kind of path into this work. And I named that, but I also recognize that there are probably some similarities in that decision-making process that folks are wrestling with uh, as they're making these decisions today. And there are some things that I wish I had done differently, even though I know that I'm here today because of the path I chose. But Uh, One of those key things is I wish that I had considered different types of institutions or programs. And case in point, I didn't know that uh, there were different types of divinity schools that I could have considered. And in hindsight, some of those might have been a better fit for me. Um, I had a wonderful experience, but just didn't explore even beyond a specific geographic region. I was limited um, in scope there. And a lot of that had to do with funding. Frankly, I just I had to go where I could afford to go. And I liked the people there, but money was a real, a real determining factor for me. And so I didn't know about things like fellowships or assistantships. And, and I really wish that I had sought help in that regard. Honestly, I think it was a lack of knowledge related to who could help me, but also it was a pride point. I wanted to figure this out on my own. Um, And so, like I said, I really do wonder if things might have been different had I had access to, or even sought those perspectives. And so again, thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's a remarkable thing. And wish that this had been a thing back when I was going through the process.
2: Thanks, Becky. Stacy, welcome. Hi everyone, I'm um, Garrett, I use she, her pronouns. Uh, and I currently serve as an associate professor of higher education as well as our program director. Um, and I'm here again at Appalachian State University, uh, home to the Cherokee, Catawba and um, other indigenous, indigenous peoples that have inhabited the Western Northern Carolina uh, region, um, also known as Boone, North Carolina. Um, But I attended James Madison University for my master's degree. um, And the official title of my degree is an MED in Counseling Psychology with a concentration in college student personnel administration. And um, I say all that because that was part of the conversation that folks had with me when considering a search for a master's program and kind of had mentors and folks that I sort of interviewed uh, to learn more about the field. And one of the decision points was about types of institutions and looking at, you know, counseling based versus administrative based. And so I think that really factored into part of why I chose JMU, um, given what I knew and thought would be my path into the field. Uh, at 22, which has shifted over time, but having that um, more people oriented, the helping side of things was really what drew me into the field. Um, but another reason I chose that program was, again, I received some advice of you know folks saying, while my undergrad institution had a, a program in the field, I was encouraged to go to a different uh, program and a different institution to explore a different institution type. And so I was given the example of, um, So larger institutions with 40,000 plus plus students. Um, And that was a little overwhelming coming from, I think at the time my undergrad would be 6,000, 7,000 students. (laughs) Um, But I did end up at a a JMU, which at the time was maybe about 15. It's grown since then. Um, But I was able to make that shift to get a different experience around size. Um, But uh, I think I also was focused on the package around uh, that was offered. again on some other advice that really stuck with me from my freshman year and like my freshman roommate's mom uh said that you should uh quote unquote never pay out of pocket for your education and I know that's not always within everyone's grasp um but at that time, 20 years ago, that um, was, I think, maybe more feasible, and that really stuck with me, and so um, at the time, that program was offering, you know, tuition, in-state tuition, a stipend through an assistantship process. These assistantships were um, required, so it was almost like this guaranteed way to cover the costs, and so um, I think when I received my offer from JMU, I was like, yeah, absolutely. You've checked all these boxes of what I was looking for in a grad program, Um, and uh, again, that led to a whole lot of, other connections with people and the network that I started building through that program. But if I could go back, I think at some point in my educational journey, I would have chosen um, some more differential institution types. I have somehow ended up at only uh, rural, predominantly white institutions over my career from working or attending. And so I think going back, I would have considered um, potentially an HBCU, a private institution, Um, something outside of the mid-Atlantic region, (laughs) I don't have too much variance in my uh, trajectory. So if that is within some your students grasp, I would say look and consider some of those factors. Geography matters, um, especially nowadays. So thinking about where you're, where where you're going to school location wise and not just um, type or things like that, but all those factors are important. So um, that's just a little bit of the things that led me to where I went.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Stacey. Gavin fellow Spartan alum
3: here. Yeah. So I'm Gavin Henning, I use he, him and his pronouns and I'm professor of higher education. And I direct our Master of Science of Higher Education program as well as our three doctoral programs at New England College. And most people don't even have heard of New England College. So I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's a small, private um, it, uh, liberal arts institution in central New Hampshire. Um, and we're actually on the traditional lands of the Abenaki, Penacook, and Pennetucket And so as Heather mentioned, I did my master's degree at Michigan State University. Um, And I kind of fell into it. You know, I I was really involved as an undergrad. Um, There was an academic advisor who said, hey, you can actually go into this as a field. But I aspired to be a clinical psychologist. And so I really kind of prepared my academic career to do that. And so I was a psychology major. Um, I actually added a second major in sociology so I could actually double the research that I could do with faculty members because there was a 12 credit limit. And so I'm like, I wanted to set myself up for that. You know, and my grades are pretty good. Pretty good. Um, but as a first generation college student, I didn't really understand how this graduate thing worked. And so I applied to a bunch of programs, 10 different programs, and I got rejected from all of them. And so that was pretty disappointing. I'm like, well, what am I gonna do now? And you know, Michigan State has a great master's program and folks said, you should you know, stay here and, and do your master's program here. So I applied like actually later in the spring of my senior year and got in. But the problem was there are no assistantships left because I had applied mm-hmm. so late. Um, and fortunately, a, pre, a hall director when I was a, um, a student had moved into student life and she cobbled together this um, assistantship um, administering medical withdrawals. <laughs> and so it, it, paid the, it paid the bills, um, you know, and so I got tuition remission, I got a housing stipend because you know, the, the assistantship wasn't on campus. So I paid for that, but obviously not, I didn't learn a ton from doing that. And so I really wish I would have um, thought about moving into, you know, applying to a student affairs program earlier, so that I would have had a better chance at different types of assistantships. In my second year in the program, I um, I worked in the residence halls as a graduate assistant and I learned a ton. And so I just wish I would have thought about that earlier so I could have really leveraged that um, practical experience um, during the first year in the program.
1: I've known you, Gavin, for 20-some years, and I did not know all of the details of that story, so it's so fun uh, to hear more. Uh, Patricia, welcome. Thank
4: you. Thank you. It's always great to be in conversation with amazing colleagues. Uh, My name is Patricia Marin. I uh, use she, her pronouns. I'm an associate professor at Michigan State and coordinator of our Student Affairs Master's program. Uh, like Heather, I'm here on the lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples. Um, my master's degree is from the University of Vermont uh, in Student Affairs Administration. Actually, it's called Higher Ed and Student Affairs, uh, was at least what it was called when I was there. Um, and why UVM? Um, I'm from New York. It was uh east Coast and it was the one that paid for me to go to school mm-hmm. um I was a hall director and I left UVM with zero debt uh, mm. I can't say that for my undergrad but <laughs> um that was that was a big a big decision uh and a big part of that decision um what would I have done differently I was thinking about this as I listen to others, um, for a lot of reasons, I I chose UVM because I needed to be near family at that time. Uh, So there are a lot of additional reasons that go into the choices that we make. Um, So I don't think that I would have done anything different. What I think about often though, is I wish I would have had access to all the resources that our students have now to answer these questions, right mm-hmm. there, there were no websites, there were no, uh, there was no social media, there was no way to communicate uh, with with programs uh, in in easy ways, and so, um, you know, I, I wish that had been different. Uh, but thirty years ago, that wasn't our reality. So, uh, so here we are.
1: Thank you so much. Um, just to add a little bit about my story to answer these three, three questions, um, I went to Colorado State University, the Student Affairs and Higher Education SAHI program. Um, I chose CSU because I had been an involved undergraduate student at Colorado State. And when I decided to quit my internship in graphic design, I was like, well, I guess I better figure out what I'm going to do after <laughs> I finish my bachelor's of fine arts, and so I went into student affairs kind of without really much consideration and didn't look at any other programs. It worked out pretty well for me, um, but I, I agree and really uh, wish that I would have explored other options. Um, and so, thus today's podcast, right? So. If you're watching today and you're an undergraduate student, or maybe you're a professional looking to make a career change, hopefully today's episode will um, unpack some of those logistics. So Stacey, we're going to start with like a segment around where to apply. Um, And I'd love for you to talk a bit about where does one go to begin their search for grad schools and who on campus might be a good resource uh, to talk to about searching for and applying to grad school.
2: Uh, so I alluded to this a little bit in my intro, but I would really start with your mentors or supervisors. If you're currently involved on campus or working on campus, um, ask folks about their experiences in school. Ask them why they chose that institution, why they chose that program. Um, I know, again, I, I did a number of informational interviews um, with people, some that knew me already, some that didn't, just to get a feel for like what, you know, you know if you did know me, it's like, you know where I might fit in, like, or I might find connection, where would I succeed? And getting a list. And then, you know, taking that list as my starting point, uh, to help narrow my search. Um, Or just to even learn about what kinds of decision points there are. So like we've mentioned, like, there's a lot of different factors that go into what would work for someone and what wouldn't, based on all the different roles and responsibilities that uh, you might hold, or that uh, may just impact your ability to be successful. And so you wanna, don't dismiss that. Um, I would never recommend that anyone like just, you know, clear the decks in terms of their responsibilities or limitations and just go, you know, quote unquote, only go where they want. Like, yes, go where you want. And it's okay to factor in all the personal things that impact Mm -hmm. your decision-making and and don't discredit those factors. and then you know this sounds trite but google um, (laughs) that's doing a broad search of you know what are the programs in my state what are the programs in this region because you might not know about um, schools that are out there if you you know especially if you're in a state that has a lot of big like flagship institutions you might only think about oh i only know you know Colorado like University of because of what I see on Saturday mornings like you know so I don't know what else is out there in Colorado but there's a lot of schools in Colorado (laughs) you know so uh don't limit yourself based on what you know based on like when you think of a certain state or area like just see what's out there. Um, also, we've got a lot of great resources in the field, like SACSA, NASPA, ACPA have lists of programs where you can search by state, you can search by type. Um, so utilize those resources that I believe are open um, to everyone, if not. Yeah, apologies. and
1: we'll, we'll post those in the show notes. I think that's a, that's a great
2: reminder is that we'll pull
1: some of those resources together for folks. So yeah, thanks. Great.
2: Um, And then, of course, consider uh, location. So um, not necessarily based on what's feasible, but also just thinking about where you'll be supported. So if you have family or friends in an area, that might be somewhere to consider if you're looking to move to a different region, or at least look around at the ability where you can find community and some chosen family and friends where you can be supported, um, whether that's on that campus, or in the community of that campus and again not to discredit the need that we we need connection we need people that will embrace us and so um, if you're in a space right now where you haven't found that yet like this can be an opportunity to find that and so navigate that utilize those resources to really find what you need to be well-rounded in your experience and pursuits
1: Great, thanks Stacey. Anyone else want to add thoughts about where and who might be good places to, um... no, we kind of covered it, we're good. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on. So uh, Patricia, let's dig into the search starting with program focus. So what are the various types of programs? Um, I have heard us talk about college student personnel. I've heard us talk about student affairs, higher ed counseling, et cetera. Um, Can you talk a little bit about um why one person might choose a certain type of program over others. Um, and then a little bit of about the difference between the types of degrees, if that matters.
4: Sure, sure. So um, there are a number of factors uh, that uh, folks should be considering, applicants should be considering as they're looking. Um, Is the program fully in person, meaning there's a residency requirement of sorts that you need to be in person and be in the seats in classes. Um, there are programs that are 100% online. You can stay exactly where you are in your pajamas at two o'clock in the morning, maybe you know, doing your online classes. So if that is something that would work for you in your current life, uh, those might be things to consider. And I think there are also uh, kind of more hybrid versions that are sit somewhere in the middle. Um, some programs are very much built around a cohort model, and when we talk about that, a group is admitted and often take a large uh, number of classes together, right? And so you are um, with the same people, learning from each other, growing, uh, building relationships and networks, uh, and that is, can be important. Other programs, you go in and you you know, do your own journey. So you you won't necessarily have that automatic network uh, around you. Some programs have very particular emphases or tracks, and you might pick uh, the student affairs track or the higher ed track or a counseling track. So you'd want to look for any kind of curricular uh, specifics around the program. Some programs are only full time and others are part-time and some kind of mix. So again, depending on uh, your current life and what you're willing to do or change or unable to change, uh, those are all things you want to uh, consider, right? Can you relocate? Uh, When people were talking about look at all the options, can you relocate? Can you give up a full-time job if that's uh, the circumstance? Can you leave your family and community uh, or are there, you know, other options right in your backyard that you may not even be aware of? And so all of those are important. Um, you know, the, the always controversial question of the M A M E D M S. MS. So, you know, I would say if you, you know, did a general search on this topic broadly in, in higher, the higher ed world broadly, Uh, someone might say that an MA is more focused on theory. Uh, An MED is more a theory to practice. And an MS uh, might often be those degrees that we see uh, with more counseling focuses. That being said, as you heard, and maybe, you know, following from some of our panelists, it doesn't always align that way. And so often, it's really a matter of where the program sits within the university. So is it in the College of Education? Is it in the College of Arts and Sciences? Uh, and what degrees uh, were allowed, whether the program was created? So, so to that, then I say, sh- like, would it, would it change your career path or your opportunity for a job if you had one or the other of these degrees? Not really. Uh, what matters is the curriculum. So that's where you're really going to want to look at, um, you know, is it more theoretical? Is it theory to practice? Are there counseling tracks? Um, you know, what are what are the requirements? What are you being asked to study? Does it align with what you want uh, and where do you want to go next in your career? That would be my my quick take, and I welcome comments from my colleagues who say you're wrong. No. <laughs>
0: No, I don't think you're, I, I just want to say, I appreciate you naming the reality that it's not going to have these grand implications necessarily for yeah. folks careers. No. Cause I can imagine a lot of folks watching this or thinking, Oh my God, I've got to get it right. Or I'm forever doomed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I appreciate um, just your naming that. And also want to echo that, that, you know, this isn't necessarily an identity. These are all considerations, but mm-hmm. I think uh, evidence by all of us that, you know, life plays out as it should in, at times. Mm-hmm. The only, thing I,
3: yeah, yeah. the only thing I'd add is I'm not, I think at the master's level, at least in these programs, the differentiation between MA, MED and, and MS is not as distinct as at the undergraduate level. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, right now, when I, when I look at folks, um, I'm not even looking at what, if it's an MS, MED, M, MA. It's really about the master's degree and then what their what mm-hmm. the curriculum was. And so I think that's probably the more important piece of it mm-hmm. is really just focusing on that curriculum.
1: So let's get into the program focus a little bit. So Gavin, can you talk a bit about higher ed, educational leadership, student affairs administration, counseling? How might a program focus open or potentially close doors for opportunities after graduation as well?
3: Right. So let me tell you a little bit about the program at NEC because it's not a typical program. So our program is an accelerated program. We have seven week terms. So we take a semester and condense it into seven weeks. And so students can actually do 40 credits in 10 months if they wanted to. It's a ton of work. So it's like two courses per seven week term, it's a ton of work. Um, but we have some students who do that full time and some students who do it part time. But the program was designed for people who were already in higher education working full time who mm-hmm. realized they went in with a bachelor's degree like, you know, I really like this, but if I'm gonna stay in this field and move up, I need a master's degree. So that's why we built this accelerator program because people wanted to get in and be able to use that degree right away and really kind of move up. It's a cohort based program. You know, We have two different intakes in the fall and in the spring um, but there's a prescribed curriculum. You know, so there is a structured coursework. So that's one thing to keep in mind as well. You know, I think a limitation of our program is that you don't have the ability to take electives. You know, which I think is a downside. The benefit is because it's a prescribed curriculum, all of the students are taking all of the classes at the same time. So you really can, can build those connections, but you don't have that flexibility. And then there's this idea of what is the focus of it? Is it administration? Is it counseling? Is it student affairs? You know, we have a higher ed administration program but I'd say really kind of lean student affairs because a lot of the courses you'd see in our program are student affairs related. And so I think, and there's also social justice related programs and equity related programs. So there's, the focus is a little bit different. Again, it's thinking about what is the curriculum? What are you interested in? What do you want to do? And it may have an impact depending on what area, what functional area you see yourself working in. You know, if you're going to be working in um, something that's direct student contact, contact with some groups like um, academic advising or mentoring or tutoring, you might has, you might want something that has a little bit more counseling in it. Um, if you're gonna be working with um, minoritized students, you might want something that has a little bit more social justice focus. Even if it's not the intentional focus, at least maybe some coursework or clearly described um, focus on uh, equity throughout all the courses, integrated through everything, not just a standalone course. And then higher ed administration, I think is maybe a little bit more broad Focusing on more of the organizational pieces, policy, those types of things. So, if you're looking to do some of those um, types of things, that might be a, a way to look. But I think, just like Patricia said, it really varies a ton. You know, so there's really even when we talk about the foci, it, it can the curriculum can vary a lot. And so, it's, again, it's like if, if they're if you're interested in one area, take a look at programs that might have those emphasis. But the curriculums really do vary a lot by program. So I don't know if there's really anything that's specific um, to that.
1: So I invited each of you on today because you each do represent different types of programs. So I would love to hear a little bit about, um, as Gavin outlined, kind of what is the nature of the program that you direct? Um, is it cohort? Is it an MED of, you know, like let's answer some of those basic questions. Um, Stacy, could, could you start us off with that? Tell us a little bit about AppState.
2: Sure. Uh, So for the higher education program, um, and that's one distinction I do have to make, I have colleagues that also represent a student affairs administration program. So Mm -hmm. we have two separate programs at our institution. Uh, So for higher education specifically, we are designed for the working professional, Uh, that's our primary population and so all of our courses are held in the evening. Students can join in person in Boone or online. Uh, We are cohort based for um, our online cohorts to help build that community. And this is also a synchronous online program. So we are meeting in the evenings via Zoom um, and are able to draw students in after they've finished their workday. It's 36 credit hours. Uh, We have full-time and part-time pathways. There's no GA requirement or practical requirement because again, most folks are, are already working in some field. Um, a lot are working in higher ed. Some are also working in other disciplines or industries and are getting this degree to help transition to higher ed. Um, but we do have space in those 36 credits for um, electives which can include an internship if someone wants some experience in a different functional area we also have great partners in a couple different programs across campus so folks can pursue dual degree options um, so we have a uh, dual degree with our um, public administration program as well as our MBA program and those are offered as well in person and online um, but yeah the focus is uh, again taking that theory straight to practice in uh, that space where folks are are already working in the field for the most part.
1: Awesome, thanks Mm Stacy. Patricia.
2: Sure, Um,
4: at MSU we are now uh, a 36 credit program, uh, nine credits a semester, full-time mostly over two years. So four semesters with us. Uh, One of the eight required courses is uh, to do a practicum and often on campus, sometimes on on other um, local campuses. Um, to bring that theory to practice. Uh, The other four courses are electives uh, that students can take uh, during the course of second, third, and fourth uh, semesters. Uh, Typically, everyone has an assistantship. uh, And I think in part, it's because if you don't get an assistantship, maybe you choose to go elsewhere, which we fully understand. Uh, Our current cohort is 24 students, uh, our incoming first years. Uh, And the other uh, piece that many of our students engage in are graduate certificates. And so we have, for example, a teaching and learning certificate that uh, some of our students also acquire along the way with their electives. uh, And also uh, frequently in Chicano and Latino studies, our students often have uh, graduate certificates from there as well as others around the university. um, yeah,
0: that's that's a quick
1: version of MSU. Great, thank you. Becky, tell us about Oregon State.
0: So Oregon State is a little unique in that um, our EDM program is in adult and higher education, and so our master's program is not a student affairs program. In fact, Oregon State, um, like it sounds like App State, has, has a distinct student affairs program. Um, it's actually housed outside of the College of Education, and so The program that I teach in is offered through Oregon State's eCampus, which means that it is completely online. It's 100% asynchronous. And yet we still have a a cohort model and our students um, tend to to become very close, uh, which really speaks to the beauty of how we can now exist in these virtual spaces and develop and cultivate really solid relationships. Um, So Oregon State is on the quarter system. And so our program is 45 credit hours. It spans two years. And I will offer that similar to some of the programs that have been mentioned, our program is really tailored to accommodate folks who are working full-time. And so one of the coolest things to me about our program is is the richness of dialogue and class exchange that happens because you have people that are working full-time, they're immersed in this work and not just within traditional higher education spaces. So drawing from that adult ed piece, we have folks that work in uh, healthcare, we have folks that work in the nonprofit sector, um, and so again, it's just a, a unique kind of experience and like the experiences that I had in grad school, um, but definitely, um, one worth considering. Thank
1: you. Becky, I going mean, to stick with you for just a moment, um, to talk a little bit about internships, practica, assistantship, like all of these are experiential learning opportunities, often coupled with the academic and class experience. Um, can you. Talk a bit about how a student might decide about their master's program based on these addition additional pieces.
0: Sure. Um, so the reality is, is that most programs are going to require these, it's at least programs that are aligned with CAS standards. Um, so just folks should know that straight out of the gate. This is something that's pretty standard. Uh, and part of the reason for that is because it's in those experiences that classroom learning comes to life in a very unique and special way. Um, And so when thinking about the roles of internships and practica and other applied experiences, I would first consider and question whether those types of experiences are required. Uh, It doesn't mean that it's a bad thing uh, if they're not required, but I would be curious if I were a prospective student, if I'm not gonna be required to engage in that, what options are there for me to gain practical experience? recognizing that some of these programs, like the one that I'm situated in, and you heard Gavin describe his program, that some of these are tailored for folks who are working full time. And so if I'm a, if if that's me, I'm also going to wonder, how is that reality going to be accommodated within the scope of this curricular emphasis? And so, um, for example, within a cohort model, is there space for me Um, to maybe integrate that those practicum hours or internship hours across terms or is there a rigid timeline with which I have to stick and how are the faculty willing to account again for the complexities of perhaps me working full-time and getting that practical experience so one like I said you know are these kinds of experiences required Um, also trying to figure out across the board what support is offered for finding those experiences. I know that can be particularly unnerving for Mm -hmm. for students and so uh, case in point in in my current program as well as the program that I served in prior to Oregon State, we promoted uh, opportunities and and certainly leveraged networks that we had to try to generate those practicum opportunities for folks but part of the learning experience as we saw it for students was for students to be empowered to generate those experiences on their Mm -hmm. own and We saw it as a vital part of their networking experience and just socialization professionally. Um, Some folks I know offer practicum fairs or do things like that. So again, not that one is better than the other, but the bottom line is, is how am I as a student going to be supported in trying to figure out how these practicum experiences or internships are going to be kind of flushed out and come to life? So, And then the last thing I would say is thinking about what types of options are available, meaning the types of positions themselves. And I always encourage prospective students and current students to remain open-minded about this. And the reality is, y'all, I can't tell you how many people, how many students I knew over the years that would come in saying, this is what I'm going to be when I grow up. And they wanted, they wanted assistantships and practica that aligned with that. And for one reason or another, had to deviate from that and ended up falling in love with the work that they did in that practicum and completely made it a career shift and part of it was just they didn't they didn't know what they didn't know and so looking at the slate of options what other students have done and just try to catch you know catch a vision for what might be through those experiences.
1: Thanks Becky. Becky you mentioned um, the CAS standards we happen to have past president (laughs) of CAS here. Uh, Gavin, do you want to just give like a short snippet of what CAS is and why that might be an important variable for folks to consider?
3: Yep. so CAS stands for the Council for the Advancement of Standards in Higher Education, and it's a consortium of 40 higher education associations that come together to develop standards for functional areas such as residence, life, student conduct, student activities, those types of things. But in addition to that, CAST developed um, standards for master's preparation programs. And I've been fortunate to be involved with the revision of those in 2012, 2019, and then um, actually even even earlier than that. And so what those outline is, you know, these are what programs say they're going to do. There are some required standards and there's some guidelines. And so they outline what the admissions process looks like, what the recruiting process should look like, the curriculum requirements, as Becky mentioned, for practica or internships or, you know, professional practice. It may look a little bit different for folks working full time, as well as pedagogy and some other things. And so you actually may see um, programs talk about um, their compliance with the CAST standards, or they're aligning with the CAST standards. So that's a signal that those um, programs are actually following those guidelines and those requirements. So that might be one other thing to take a look at when you're reading descriptions of, of um, programs.
1: Thanks, Gavin. Uh- Stacy, I think another piece in addition to experiential opportunities is focus on DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion um, and belonging. We we, uh, talked on our previous episode, this is a baseline competency for folks who work in student affairs, um, but how might a student know if a program has a particularly strong focus in DEIB?
2: Yeah, I would start with the program website. Um, never underestimate power of a mission statement, a vision statement or goals uh, for an organization. Uh, that's always a signal for me if it's in those guiding statements and those, those um, guiding values that is a at least is the setup <laughs> for the potential for that to be embedded throughout the, the curriculum and the coursework. Um, and so that's always my first kind of cue. I would also look at the coursework. Um, so that might mean going to the graduate school bulletin um, to look at, you know, what is on record uh, that the program is saying, like, these are our courses and you can look at course descriptions, see how they're talking about different things. Um, some will say that, you know, you want to look for that diversity in higher ed course, or that social justice and inclusion course. I would say also looking at the descriptions to see how that information or those topics are woven through each of the courses and not just concentrated in one course, that's a different level. So you can kind of gauge and assess, you know, how embedded those principles are in the work. Um, But also look at the faculty websites, see who's teaching in these programs, look and see what's the research that they're doing. What are their interest areas? because I, I know and it's a case for my faculty, our approach to our research is very similar to our approach to our courses. And so um, these elements, there's some themes within us amongst faculty and so you can almost I would say almost guarantee that if it's something that they're, the faculty is passionate about from a research agenda perspective, it's gonna show up in their in their coursework, in their classes and how they approach the work. Um, and again, the same thing with, from an advising perspective, a lot of program faculty serve as the student advisors. And so if you can see that theme within the coursework, their research, there's something that's core tied to those faculty members that's gonna show up then in, in how they interact with you um, as a student, how you might be mentored, Um, And again, where you might feel that sense of belonging and care that I think is really important in the field. Um, And as we, you know, mentioned, of course, the the CAS standards, you might see that language showing up in their program websites. You might see our ACPA and NASPA competencies embedded in the learning goals for programs. And um, these DEIB topics are, are woven throughout professional standards for our field. And so when you can see that alignment, that connection, I think there's a good chance you're gonna find a program that's also moving in that direction and preparing folks to develop that competency.
1: Nice, thank you, Stacy. Mm-hmm. What, what would other folks add about either this or any of the other ACPA and NASPA competencies?
4: I would, I would add, um, it could be useful to ask what books are being read in those classes, mm-hmm. who are the scholars whose work <laughs> is being read and assigned in those classes and what kind of assignments are being done in those classes. I think those are those are some things related to the curriculum. I think beyond the curriculum, some of our programs also host speakers and events and other kinds of things that are um, related to the program, but often open to the broader community. And who are those people that are brought in, what are the topics that the program is interested in engaging in, uh, not only within the program, but with the broader community as well.
3: And the one thing I would add is related to the program description or the program learning outcomes. So pro- academic programs will have learning outcomes for the program, what students should get out of the program, the entire Um, composite of all the experiences. And typically, especially if uh, um, if equity or DEIB are integrated throughout the courses, they'll show up in the program um, outcomes. You might not see it as an individual course, especially as a field, we move to integrating this across everything and not just isolating diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging within one course. But that might be another signal that that's really um, an important element for that program.
2: Perfect,
1: thank you so much. Let's move on to segment two of our episode today, which is the how to apply mm-hmm. to grad school segment. Um, I knew when I did this, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and who knows how many, te- I don't know, 15 years later when I applied for my my doctorate, I was like, and here we go again. Um, so Patricia, let's get into some of these application requirements. Could you give us an overview of some general requirements that most programs have? that some programs require different things. Um, Yeah, we'll start there.
4: Sure, sure. So the first thing I would say is because each program offers, um, has different requirements, you certainly want to make sure you know what those are for the different programs, right? And make sure you get a complete portfolio in based on whatever those requirements are. Um, Generally, I would say you're probably going to have to write a personal and or academic statement. Uh, You'll typically be asked to respond to very specific prompts. Uh, You might also think about this as a writing sample, even though it's not designated that way. Mm -hmm. People who are reviewing it are going to say, how successful do we think this person can be? How can we provide support? To this person, if we were to admit them, Um, also letters of recommendation are, you know, typically a a very standard uh, requirement. Uh, You should definitely look if there are any specifics on what type of or from whom the program is interested in those recommendations. Uh, For example. Uh, many programs might say at least one recommendation should be from a faculty member or someone who could speak to your academic success and potential in graduate school or something like that. Uh, A resume in some form, either typed into uh, the portal that is uh, used for admissions or, uh, you know, a formal resume on a page. Um, Here, you're going to want to talk about Any experience that shows your commitment to student affairs, your experience, transferable skills, uh, professionally and paraprofessionally, right? We want to know you were the head of student government. We want to know you were uh, involved in union activities, uh, you know, in your student union, anything like that. Uh, transcripts are typically part of this. Uh, and the one thing I will say with that is you want to make the requests and orders early to get them in time to campuses. The one thing that is always frustrating, I see my colleagues nodding their heads, is we want to make a decision on someone, but we're waiting on their transcripts because it was you know, requested the day before or something. So all of this, think about the timing. Um, some campuses, some programs require interviews as part of that admissions uh, process, others uh, do not. And you know, you'd you coordinate that if they're virtual uh, or in-person. Um, and, and the thing overall, I would say with submitted materials is you're trying to give a holistic view of who you are, of why this is the path you're interested in right now um, why now and why this program? And those answers will be very different, right? We, we know very clearly if you say to us, oh, because I want to study counseling in depth, Mm, you got the wrong program. So, so what is it about us that really excites you, um, you know, about any of the programs you would be applying to? And you want to think about each of these pieces as, part of the whole telling us who you are.
1: Right. Uh, GRE. Do we still require the GRE?
4: So it certainly depends on the program. Um, At at MSU, uh, you know, we talk to our colleagues, like uh, none of us know when the last time we actually required it. It's, you know, certainly for, you know, 10, 20 years that we have not. other programs still do. And so again, it's just following the rules of the requirements of the program to make sure you have in front of uh, whoever's making those admissions decisions the full package, right? We, I- I'm going to say it a little bit differently. We want to know you can already follow some guidelines. Right? <laughs> we want to, right? That's, that's, part of, that's, that's part of the process, right? If it's like, We didn't say we needed this. Why did they give us 12 recommendations? And why did they give us three statements? If we asked for one, even if your package is amazing, it's signaling something to us that I don't think is your intention. So, Mm -hmm. you know, reading, you know, what I always say is answer the question, right? Like read the rules, the requirements, Follow them and then ask questions if it's confusing, right? Sure. Like all of us, it, it's, I think sometimes students feel, applicants feel like, oh, I can't ask because it's not appropriate or, or they're, they're, I can't talk to them about this. Ask us. We love to know that students are interested in our programs uh, and we love to help you through that process. Um, so ask, ask the questions and let us provide that support for you in this.
1: So for folks who are listening, not watching, when I asked the GRE question, everybody shook their head no. So it sounds like that's really not not required anymore. Um, and I remember taking the GRE like the minute before I applied for grad school. Cause again, I had just quit my internship and was like, I have to take a test, you know? So thank goodness it's not required anymore for, for the most part. Um, but what is the timeline for all of this, Gavin? Do you, can you give us a little bit about like, when do people apply? This is Careers and Student Affairs Month here, October. You know, should I, if I'm graduating in May, should I be thinking about grad school now or should I wait until um, April?
3: Well, I'm definitely going to defer to my colleagues because we have rolling admissions. Okay. So we don't okay. really have a set timeline. So we do rolling admissions. We actually admit students up to the week before the term starts. And as I mentioned, we have two intakes, both in the um, fall and, and in the spring. So we don't have the same type of timeline. So for us, as soon as students submit all their materials and they do you know exactly where piece pieces out, Get all the stuff that we need. Once we get all those pieces, you know, the admissions folks will send it to um, the admissions committee within the department, and then we'll review those and make a decision. So that's another thing to take a look at: is you know, are there timelines? Is it rolling admissions? Is it every? You know, they, they there's a deadline of February 1st, and at that point. All the materials are going to be looked at for all the applicants, you know, and then decisions are made. So that uh, may vary a little bit. And I think there's also different deadlines and timelines for once the um, the admit invitation has been made. When students need to make a choice because there may be a waiting list. And so you know, a lot of our programs have limited space. So you know, if we need people to make a decision because if they're if they're going to choose a different program, that pro- would provide an opportunity for somebody else. So that would be something to think about. One deadline, though, that I think a lot of programs with assistantships um, adhere to is the the Council for Graduate Schools resolution regarding graduate scholars, fellows, Mm -hmm. trainees, and assistants. And so for programs that have these types of positions, um, a lot of institutions have signed on and said they're not gonna require students to respond to offers of financial support. So offers of um, assistantships prior to April 15th. So that might be one thing to keep in mind. If a program says, we need your response by, by March 1st, you know, keep in mind that well, a lot of programs have signed down to this resolution that they're not gonna require students to make that decision before the April 15th date. Now that doesn't mean that's a bad program or anything, just keep that in mind. That some other programs, they may be waiting um, until that date. Um, And part of the reason is that because of the competition um, for, you know, high quality folks for these assistantships, we didn't, you know, these institutions that we're not going to compete against each other and start offering, you know, things back at like November 1st, uh, because all those spots will be taken up. So that's what we have at NEC, but I know my colleagues are going to have different deadlines and different timelines for these processes.
1: Yeah, who else would like to share a bit about this?
2: Stacey, maybe? Yeah, so I think it is October, so I would say now is the time (laughs) to start thinking about what your plans might be should you be graduating in May, Um, because, um, again, uh, based on the timeline, generally what happens, I think a lot of programs have a January 1 or a February 1 deadline, Um, and If you are in a program or you're looking at programs that do have that assistantship component, a lot of folks are doing their interview weekends where you're interviewing for the program and your assistantship at the same time. And those also usually take place in February early times of the spring semester Um, so. Also then you wanna look ahead now to be prepared for those deadlines because they may have earlier deadlines as well. I know some programs may have like an early deadline of December one or a priority deadline um, and then may have a final deadline of February one or something like that. Um, Also April one is a day that's out there sometimes for programs depending or March one. So it can vary, but I think this act your senior year or your final year as an undergraduate, if you're looking to go straight into Uh, a master's program, now is the time to start getting in the pipeline and the queue for that so that you don't miss anything. And also making sure that um, you're looking ahead to see those requirements so that you can be kind to your faculty uh, as you ask for letters of recommendation and giving them (laughs) enough time, lead time for them to write that. So, you know, going to them the day before maybe uh, a fall break or um, November, November, break. And then all of a sudden, you know, they have a, dis. but you have a December one deadline. (laughs) Um, People might not want to work during the break. And so (laughs) giving folks enough time to, to help you. uh, And the same thing again, with being mindful of those semester breaks as well, where it's like, okay, I have a January one deadline, but the university's closed from December 17th through January 6th, when (laughs) semester starts you might not be able to get that transcript so um be start looking now to get a sense of those timelines and put those deadlines in a calendar and set reminders so that um you have what you need on time um yeah good super helpful yeah ours is a december 1st deadline Uh, Mm -hmm. so we
4: are on the earlier side so you know track big spreadsheet track the dates Mm -hmm. get the stuff in
1: That's great advice. Um, So when I think about, and we've mentioned some of the different requirements, one of them being an interview or a visit in person. I know my grad program had um, visit weekends and I know we've done it similarly, differently from year to year, but the pandemic really like upset all of our thoughts about what visit days looked like. Um, Becky, can you talk a little bit about how prospective students might learn about a campus without visiting um, and maybe some of the ways that these new visit days have been constructed.
0: Absolutely. I just want to say that um, I actually personally like the way that the pandemic gave us space to innovate Mm -hmm. visit days, um, such that we had to get rid of some of the antiquated ways that we held those weekends. I I think specifically about the ways that the, the old way of doing Um, often put an undue financial burden on prospective students Mm -hmm. as they were having to not just get to the respective campuses, but, you know, we always put our suits on as though that's what we wear on a daily basis. And so sometimes it was going to purchase new clothes just for these weekends. So I think that the way that institutions and programs have had to restructure these, it's very helpful for students. I do understand, though, that it is hard to get a feel for a place without stepping foot on a campus because there's just something about being there and seeing it in person um, so I'm I'm curious to hear what others might have to offer in this but just thinking about a few tips um, that I have for getting a sense of campus without visiting or, or one to be sure to fully engage in the virtual offerings that both programs and I would also say departments often offer these kinds of resources um, but to be sure to engage fully and that should go without saying, but I think about how many times we're guilty of being on Zoom and multitasking and, you know, we're looking at our phones or doing emails or whatever, but um, carving out time for those and treating those with the same sense of, um, I guess, focus or priority that you would if you were there in person. Um, and then I will also just say, as somebody who went through the job interview process during the pandemic, I found myself drawing from some of the resources that the University Office of Admissions offered. So sometimes, you know, yeah. you know whether there's virtual, I found myself on YouTube looking at tours and things like that. There were just different resources that um, outside of the program that the university itself had curated just so I could um, kind of glean from those. Those things I, I found would be very helpful. Uh, if that if that's not offered, or even if it is, I would also ask the program coordinator if it would be possible to have a current student take you on a virtual walking tour. I, I love things like Facebook tour or not Facebook Facetime tours. Um, you know, just being able to walk around and kind of see campus through the eyes of kind of a live thing. Not walking around necessarily with a, a Zoom call that would be kind of awkward. But just thinking of creative ways to get to see the spaces where students um, do life, and then um, Seeing if you could zoom into class. I know when I was at Ohio State during the pandemic um, and we were trying to navigate some of this, we had students that would ask if they could zoom into class. And of course, yes, we're wel- you're welcome to do that. And so asking if that's an option. And then two last other quick tips that I thought of was one is to use social media. And I don't mean those beautifully curated university or program sites. You're not gonna see real life on that. That's just like stock photo kind of quality stuff. But when I'm trying to get a feel for a new place and I'm thinking about moving or attending, I search the location tags on Instagram just to try or things like that, just to try to get a vibe of like where people are tagging photos, seeing how people are like really living their lives. And then thinking about the fact that you're not just considering a graduate program, but you're considering your life being changed in some ways. And so for some folks, it may mean that you're completely uprooting your life. And you've got to figure out, is this a, a city or a town where I could just survive but thrive and so doing a little digging on the location itself um and just making sure that you don't just love your program but that you're you feel safe you feel seen um, and you're going to feel a sense of belonging in in the city itself so those were those were just a few tips um that i had but again if other folks have others i'd be curious to hear
2: other additions i would just add real quick if programs are hosting um virtual, or in-person information sessions, make a point to attend one of those because you can get some of your specific questions asked. Um, A lot of times they'll have current students participating so you can get that student Mm. perspective on the program and what they've experienced or navigated different things. So those can be really helpful um, opportunities that are planned and structured, but also can still give you that access and connection point. I love it.
1: That's great. I agree with you. I think the pandemic, I mean, in lots of ways has, has really forced us to rethink the way that we engage, but has increased access in a lot mm-hmm. of ways too. So speaking also about access, um, graduate school, if you're paying for it out of pocket can be pretty expensive, um, but there are options. We've been talking about assistantships. What is a graduate assistantship? What kinds of benefits come from an assistantship and are there tuition assistance? Patricia, tell us a little bit about how that plays out at Michigan State and then I'll go to Stacey to talk full-time staff folks.
4: Sure, sure, happy to. Um, So at Michigan State, we're fortunate to have many partners around the university who offer graduate assistantships and hire uh, graduate students, not just from our program, uh, to do work. Right? Typically it's about a 20 hour a week position. Uh, they are paid a stipend uh, depending on the position. If it's a live in hall director position that might include housing and a meal plan uh, at MSU. It also includes the option for graduate student parking uh, and some health benefits. Uh, tuition assistance uh, at MSU: nine credits of tuition at MSU's baseline tuition rate is covered. Um, not covered at MSU, but I know covered at other institutions. Are some of the other fees that are associated with, um, you know, being being a student. Uh, so these are great opportunities financially but also great theory to practice opportunities that I know that we've mentioned a great deal of all of these opportunities that, that we have are in some version of student work. And so they, uh, our students are able to engage uh, and bring from the classroom to their work uh, and, and experience and practice and be supervised by a professional who can also help guide them uh, toward their journey.
1: Great. Thank you. Stacey, talk a little bit about full-time folks and others also can weigh in here. I was really fortunate in my doctoral program to be a part of a, of a union that provided some great benefits for tuition assistance. Uh, what have you
2: seen for full-time folks in paying for school? Yeah. Um, generally, that is one of your um, benefits that can come uh, with full-time employment is uh, a waiver or assistance or remission um, for your tuition up to a certain point. Um, so for example, in the University of North Carolina system, uh, employees can take up to three courses or nine credits of um, any educational for credit course um, while they're employed. And I believe that benefit starts at the time of employment. Some places may say you have a delay where you have to work for a year before you can access that benefit. Um, But I believe ours starts with employment. So if you are working full time at any system school, you can take classes at any system school um, and utilize that waiver. And so um, that our students get to make use of that. um, And you can, you know, folks can also, because we have a part-time option, folks can take one class at a time and take, you know, one class without waiver and cover the costs of um, their program or at least cut it in half if they're taking two classes at a time. So that's a really great option. Um, But also I would say that, you know, scholarships do exist for graduate students, whether you're a full-time student or a full-time employee. So be sure to be asking questions about scholarships, whether that's at your university within the department or the program that you're applying to, but also more broadly uh, there's different ways to access um, free money (laughs) throughout your graduate work. Um, And also as well as if you're thinking about financial aid, there's financial aid for graduate students. So um, whether that's through the, you know, completing your FAFSA and all those pieces, there are different levels and really specific requirements in some ways. So consult your financial aid folks at the institution that you're applying to um, just to make sure you're eligible about what can be covered in terms of, again, full-time, part-time, making sure courses are a part of your official program of study and that sort of thing. But there are other ways to access uh, financial support to um, pay for your education, depending on at any point within your however you're pursuing your degree.
1: Great, perfect. Well, we are at time usually always um, running up against the hour. So thank you all so much for your time today. It's been such a great conversation. Um, We always end, our podcast is called Student Affairs Now. We always end with this final question. If You could please take a minute or two to summarize what you are pondering, questioning, excited about, or troubled by. Um, And if you would like to share how people can connect with you or learn more about your graduate program, like your Instagram handle, um, please share that as well. And Patricia, we're going to start with you.
4: Sure. Um, I'm always excited at this time of year. It's, It's a time of possibility. It's a time of hope. Uh, We are always thrilled when people are interested in considering our program. But in general, what we always say is we're thrilled people are considering higher ed and student affairs. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need amazing, bright, hopeful students uh, to become, uh, you know, the future creators and recreators of our field. And so uh, super excited about that. Um, You can email me directly at pmarin at msu.edu, and we also have uh, an Instagram at SAA underscore MSU, so follow us there. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Gavin.
3: So I'm thinking about what I know now as a program director and what I would have told myself as a first gen student navigating this uh, probably over 30 years ago. And I think, you know, now the great thing with, you know, back when I was in grad school, there was computers just came out, no internet, no cell phones. So we really didn't, all the information was in paper. So there's a ton of information electronically now. That's a huge benefit. But the downside is, I think people, um, prospective students have stopped talking and asking questions. Mm. And so, what I really learned is that I think uh, prospective students learn a lot by talking to program directors, talking to faculty in the programs, asking to talk to um, students. I think information sessions are fantastic, but even that one on one conversation, students may be more, you know, prospective students may be more open to ask some of those questions they wouldn't ask in public. You know, and Becky mentioned this whole idea of belonging. You know, so we can learn a lot about the the program by looking at the, the at the at the catalog, by looking at the course description, by looking at the program webpage. But we don't necessarily get that sense of what the culture is like, what you know, what I belong at that place. And so, having those conversations, I think can help you do that. You know, so start asking about you know beyond the the basics about the curriculum. So how how do you go about teaching? What's your philosophy about teaching? How do you support students? If I were to talk to three different current students right now how would they describe their program what are the challenges that students have and then my favorite what are the weaknesses of your program because we always kind of like they don't really talk about the warts but I think sometimes mm-hmm. the honesty can help people really think about you know is that a good fit or right, yep, yeah, that's okay or actually you know that weakness is a strength for me and so and the other thing I mentioned is that I want people to be successful So even if they don't choose New England College's program and I refer them to App State, Oregon State, Michigan State, somewhere else, I want them to be successful because, again, this is the future of our field. And Mm -hmm. so I want folks to be able to find a program that meets their needs where they feel like they belong so they continue in the field to really make a difference in the field and make a difference for our students now and in the future. Mm -hmm. Great.
1: Gavin, how can we connect with you or with New England College?
3: Yeah, uh, my email address at ghenning at nec.edu. Great. Thank you.
1: Thank you. All right. uh, Becky, your final thoughts.
0: Gosh, you know, my answers were, were, I guess, were very different than you all in that. I I feel like I was a negative Nancy over here. I will say that I'm incredibly excited because it is truly the first day of school here. And so there's always something so right. We start quarter systems, y'all. But it's just the first day of school is always so great. But Uh, Related to my current institution, I'm thinking about just some interesting things that are playing out with the collapse of the PAC-12 and Mm -hmm. thinking about how these institutional decisions um, that sometimes happen outside of uh, our institutions impact students and thinking about how we can support um, student athletes. Um, So that was one thought that I had this morning, but also just thinking about the future of our profession uh, related to states where these anti-DEI policies are playing Mm -hmm. out. And what is that going to mean for folks? Is there considering grad programs and thinking about where it is that they want to plant their lives and do this work. And so, um, but just appreciate all that y'all have said. And Gavin, just again, talking about how we can humanize this. And so to folks that are listening and watching, please don't hesitate to reach out um, to any of us. And you can contact me at becky.crandall at But I, I do think, again, we're all humans and and we are here because we enjoy students, at least in theory. So please, please reach out to us. Uh, we're here to help.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Becky. Stacy, your final
2: thoughts. Um, I'm also in a, in a similar place to maybe Becky in that I took a little bit more of a, a troubling space when I thought about this question. And um, I'm just really questioning how we can modernize our field and our profession. Mm-hmm. I think for the time that I've been in the field, there's always been this tug of war between or debate between academia and industry or a corporate sector. Um, But I feel like over time that that gap has expanded between what we can, what we're doing or how we're maybe academia is lagging behind corporate um, approaches and what we should be thinking about and how we're uh, valuing folks. I think that's a a general theme and conversation we're talking about in the field uh, and across the country in terms of equitable pay and uh, restructuring of positions um, things like that Um, but at the same time it's like students need us we need each other we need good people in the field in the profession doing this work and so how do we um, make this space more um, more welcoming, more inviting, more supportive for everyone that's choosing to engage, not only in this work, but still engaging in higher education as a student and pursuing um, advanced degrees. And I think that the, the, what brings us together is still really important. And I think um, we need to still be inviting folks into that, to breathe new life into the field so that it can really help to transform the whole field of higher education. And so, I like to, I still love this work and I still love bringing people into the space to be thought partners in that. Um, So that's what keeps me in the field and keeps me engaged in conversations like this um, are are really uh, the bright spots in the work that I do. So for those of you, again, that are, are watching and listening and thinking about entering the field, I hope that this is a, a help and is really motivating you to get involved and to keep on this path. We'd love to see you, <laughs> um, whether it's one of our programs or any of the other great programs across uh, our country and across the world that are doing this work, like we need you, we are looking for that fresh uh, fresh blood, fresh wind um, into to breathe life into our, our field and to the work and the lives of the people that we touch because we're nothing without the people uh, that are in this work, so. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find my program on LinkedIn. Um, and occasionally you can find me on what's left of Twitter, um, at stacyg_phd, underscore um, PhD, and also via email at garrettsd at appstate.edu.
1: Great. Wonderful. Thank you all. I, what you do for students as faculty really, truly matters. And I just want to extend my, my gratitude for your time here today and for your contributions to this conversation. I um, also want to just take a moment to send thanks uh, to our incredible producer, Nat Ambrosie. Uh, Nat, your efforts don't go unnoticed, and we are so grateful for everything that you do for us. Um, and of course, our uh, podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of our episode sponsor. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. And to learn more, you can visit Simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, what was Twitter, and LinkedIn. So to our listeners, if you are new to our podcast, we encourage you to listen to, go to our website at studentaffairsnow.com and you can click on our sponsors link. You can click on our archives link, um, learn more about all of the episodes that we have hosted with this content. Um, And if you're tuning in today and not already subscribed to our newsletter, you can take a moment to enter your email on our website and you'll stay in the loop with all of our latest updates and content. Um, Again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks to everyone who's watching and listening. Let's make this Careers in Student Affairs Month truly a great one. Thanks, everybody.